So, uh, we dispense with the typical scripture reading prior to the sermon because I'm going to read it to you. Um, it's a long passage, so I uh, hope you will bear with. Um, and then we're going to go on a journey together. Um, so I'm going to say something funny now because pretty sure there will be nothing funny to follow. Um, <laughs> I am the closer, uh, so that was supposed to be funny. So someone once said to me, I'm going to hit you so hard your whole family will feel it. Uh, I think it was in jest, um, but it's an interesting idea, the idea of your connectedness to your family, that a blow you might suffer would impact other people whom you are associated or related to, right? So I just want to plant that little seed. But will you turn in your Bibles, and I'm going to give you a moment to do this, or flip in your phones, to Ezra, the book of Ezra. It follows Second Chronicles, so I know you're going to turn right to it. And I'm going to read all of Ezra 9 and some of Ezra 10. So um, why don't you do this? Why don't you stand for the readings of uh, God's word, and we'll, um, we'll do that for this one. See, some people are still turning to it. That's good. That's awesome. It's like Bible drill. Uh, okay, starting in Ezra 9. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them, and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of the, this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then, at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads. And our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins, and he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, O oh our God, what can we say after this? For we have disregarded the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and have given us a remnant like this. 
Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the people who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, we have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. So take courage and do it. You may be seated. The word of the Lord. So, sounds like a good time, right? Right. All right, so um, I, know, I know a lot of you, and so I know there are both folks who are, getting, who are new to the word, who perhaps have not read the whole books to understand the, how the narrative works, and some of you are scholarly. So I'm going to try and go somewhere in between and, and hit on both of those. So um, the book of Ezra, it occurs historically near the end of the Old Testament, right? It's about 100 years before the end of the Old Testament, or a little bit less. Um, some other names you might recognize, Ezra. Uh, Nehemiah, who, by the way, were the Luke Skywalker and Han Solo of the rebuilt Jerusalem. Um, You can pick on me for that later if you want. Um, And their contemporaries, Haggai and Zechariah, who you'll recognize for their messianic prophecies. I said that for the scholastics in the group. Um, They are roughly in the same period of time, post-exilic rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. All right, Haggai and Zechariah, both prophets, but they were rebels. And uh, they took on something that they'd been been forbidden to do and then pursued it until they got God's blessing to complete it. So they're rock stars. So that's that group of guys. Pretty interesting. Now, quick timeline. I wish I had a slide of this, but uh, just pay attention to the big ones. 586 B.C., for those of you keeping track, that was when Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians and all the Jews were taken captive to Babylon, except the poorest people who were left to tend the vineyards. Um, 537, if I do my math right, that's 47 years later. The first exiles, that's two generations, right, living in Babylon, return to Jerusalem. Two years later, they start on rebuilding the temple. The next year, the work on the temple stops because they're being opposed by the people who think they're going to rebuild it and, and try to conquer them. 520 B.C., Work on the temple resumes under those rock stars, Haggai and Zechariah. They take it on and they start doing it again. In 515, five years later, the temple is completed and dedicated. And there's a big worship celebration when that happens. And 458, which is the 60-some years after that, Ezra comes to Jerusalem. And you'll find that he's sent in order to help them with the law because he's a guy who knows a lot about the law. 444, 14 years later, Nehemiah comes who finishes building the wall. And then, just for reference, the book of Malachi, who's the, uh, the modernist prophet, and just read it and we can discuss that, um, is in about 430 B.C. And as you all know, from Malachi to the birth of Jesus, silence. So we are very close to the end of all that that left them with expectation about what's going to happen next. And I thought it was appropriate to do this because the next thing that happens is the birth of Jesus, right? The next prophet. Okay, so who was Ezra? 
um, if you're looking back in chapter 7, and I won't read all this in the interest of time, but it gives a little bit of who he is, and I will just tell you, he was a great times 14. That's great, 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 grandson of Aaron, the brother of Moses. So he comes from a high priest line. So Ezra had good cred. Um, he was a priest, a teacher of the law, and he walked with God. And this is what the text says about him five times. He was under the gracious hand of the Lord his God. Just look at a couple of these in 7.6. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. For the hand of the Lord's God was on him. And in 10, for Ezra had the gracious hand of his God. Oh, sorry. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Right? So he was a priest and a teacher. Um, and then it says once more in 11, it states the same thing under the gracious hand. Uh, he was learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord for Israel. All right? So uh, if you, this guy knew stuff. He knew stuff and he wanted to share it and he wanted to lead his people. And he was also devoted to God. I want to say... Teresa and I talked about this a lot, trying to get at the heart of this passage. And I want to say that Ezra experienced God. He didn't just know him. He wasn't just devoted to him or walked with him. He experienced God. And he was very spiritually disciplined. Just one quick story. Um, he is chosen by King Artaxerxes because of his knowledge of the law to be sent back to Jerusalem to help those ruffians who had rebuilt the temple. And they'd been, Babylon, they'd been steeped in Babylonian culture for 50 years, went back to Israel and tried to resume the, the worship of God, right? And out of that sort of marriage came Samaritans, who you may have heard of. They were sort of a blended syncretistic religion. Anyway, Artaxerxes under the hand of God, says, we need a guy to go and clean that up. And so Ezra is the one who's elected to go and do it. And before he goes, he assembles the leaders. He kind of, let me see, any, any elders out there? Any, any of my brethren out there? Not one? Okay. Um, that'll be next service, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> there is a, um, we've been grappling with an idea called a service board loosely based on the model of first century deacons. Uh, and so what Ezra did was essentially grab his service board guys. He looked out and he chose the most faithful people who could help them. He assembles them and they go from Babylon to Jerusalem. And it's a great story because he says uh, that he, 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 let me read it to you. It's in 823 and there by the Ahava Canal I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. Now listen to this. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. Nyan, 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 nyan. <clears throat> so we fasted and petitioned our God about this and he answered our prayer. I love this. So though, uh, in the spiritual disciplines, he gathers a community to pray and fast. He proclaims a community-wide fast to do this. This is not the only time he does this. And then it says, later, the hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. And why was that significant? Because when they went, the king of Persia also thought that it would be a good idea to make a sizable donation to all the work that was going on in Jerusalem. So they were just loaded with gold and silver and precious items. And they had women and children, and they're traveling 
1,500 kilometers or whatever it is from Babylon to Jerusalem, that's rough territory, right, with women and children and like uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of valuables for the temple. And that they made it was a significant protection of God along the way. And I just wanted you to see Ezra's involvement in God in every step of what he's doing. Okay, when the mission was accomplished, in addition to all the valuables, he was also given a letter from the king of Persia to tell all the basic governing people there in Jerusalem and the area around it, sometimes called Trans-Euphrates, if you read this, right, west of Euphrates. And after he delivered all the gold and silver, and he delivered these messages to the governors, who, by the way, were instructed that they should support, through the taxes being levied on the people of Trans-Euphrates, support the work of the temple and the work that um, Ezra was going to do. So it was really an amazing, almost private-public partnership going on there. Thank you. You in the development world will get that. Um, When that was done, they had a big worship service, and I just want to read in 835... Then the exiles who had returned from captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 male lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats, right? Because you know why they slaughtered animals, because the animals died in their place, okay? So this is going on in the background. This happens... Ezra was there, mission accomplished. They have a big worship service. All is right in the universe. Until the next morning, and that's when we pick up in chapter (sighs) 9. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Um, Now, just incidentally, for those of you taking notes, the issue was not a racial one. The issue was a spiritual one. Because when they married all these people around them who had crazy detestable practices that God had strictly forbidden, guess what? Those, those wives tempt their husbands to go after them and start doing the same sort of idol worship and, and other horrible things. Look at Solomon at the end of his life, right? Um, so that was what the problem was. And they were led by their leaders into this blatant disregard for God's commands. Look at Ezra's response, verse 3. Oh, context. Ezra was on a spiritual buzz be coming off what had just happened with the trip, the journey, God's protective hand, the delivering of the valuables, the great worship service. I mean, he was on a high. It reminds me of Jesus' best day ever when he um, goes and he's baptized and the heavens part and his father says, this is my son. I am pleased with you, right? Boom. Then the devil drives him into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. This is that same kind of whiplash moment when the people come to Ezra the next morning, his leaders. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Again, there's a sacrifice theme in here. 
that from the time he heard this in the morning to the time of the evening sacrifice, roughly three in the afternoon, he probably stayed in that position, not eating or drinking for five or six hours without moving, okay? He felt the unbearable weight of the collective offense of the nation. His leaders hit him so hard, the whole family felt it. Or in reverse, the family was doing something and he as the leader felt it and identified with them, but his response was anguish. It reminds me of a line, any 10th Avenue North fans here? Yes, I know you guys are. There's a song, Hallelujah, and the line says, while I'm falling to my knees, I feel the earth beneath with the weight of my sin and this crushing unbelief. The leader is crushed by the unbelief of his community. He was appalled, uh, and what appalled means? Stunned, devastated, overwhelmed with horror, consternation, and dismay. Can you get darker than that? It's, it's pretty hard, right? And I might point out um, that he was not even a guilty one. This was on the, on the behalf of his community, his extended family. Now, in addition to what he might be thinking about this horrendous sin that these people had committed against God. Remember, he's their leader. Some call him their governor even. And he thinks, you got that many marriages going on. You have issues of property. You have issues of political alliances in all probability. You have children born of these marriages. Ah, what are we going to do about that? Not only that, if we don't stop doing this, God's going to hit us even harder. And those things contributed to his sense of, I was going to tear my shirt as an um, illustration, <clears throat> but my uh, wardrobe mistress was not um, ready to let me do that. <laughs> there, I made you laugh. Good thing. Um, so he's feeling all this, and he was extraordinarily public about this, okay? Because he's at, we presume that he's at that place where the sacrifice is being given, which is in the courtyard of the temple, which is where the altar was, because they don't burn the animals in the temple. They burn them in front of the temple, Right? So he is down on the ground, and people begin to gather. And I just love that line. Everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel. When was the last time you trembled? Trembled at the word of the God of Israel. In 10.1, it says, while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down, before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children gathered around him. They, too, wept bitterly. A confessing, publicly confessing leader gathers to him a confessing community. Bearing the weight, the crushing weight of unbelief. Sin comes with a price, and somebody has to pay it. For God to leave sin unpunished would be inconsistent with his character. They're feeling the burden of their circumstances. And just a quick reminder, 713. Uh, nope, sorry, wrong reference. Um, but they were perceived, they were slaves. Even though they lived in Jerusalem, they were still vassals to the Babylonian Empire, right? So they weren't free. They had lots of stuff going on, and now this. And God had already decimated them, right? From just, just a quick reference point, from the peak of the kingdom, which is around the time of Solomon, 
the total Jewish nation numbered probably two and a half to three million people. When Nebuchadnezzar took them away into Babylon, they had been reduced to less than 100,000. By what? By God's judgment on them for their disregard of his commands and decrees, right? So they took them away to Babylon. They sent back 4,600. So a tenth of those got sent back, right? But that's the sort of perspective of they are aware of what's been happening. If you read the whole Old Testament, not in a sitting, because that would be hard, but you get to the end, and the story goes on and on, and it's like, let me up, let me up. I've had enough, right? Just give you some perspective. Okay, so his prayer, the opening couple of verses, he's confessing, oh my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads, i.e. we're in deep bandini. And it's our fault. Our guilt has been great because of our sins. We and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. And then, look what he does next in his prayer. He inserts a brief glimmer of light. And I'm going to read this from New King James because I like the words slightly better. So, um, verse 8, And now, for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place. I'll explain that in a second. That our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, oh our God, what shall we say after this? So in the midst of him horrified with what's going on around him, and with them all feeling the devastation of national punishment because of their disregard for God's laws, yet... He finds things to be grateful for in the middle of that, right? We are a remnant. You didn't wipe us out completely, and you probably should have. You know, God reserves the right to do that. He did it once, except for eight individuals. It's his world. They're his people. Um, they left us a remnant to escape, gave us a peg in his holy place. What that means, it's a peg. It's something to hang your hat on, Right? So they rebuilt the temple. Not only that, the king of Persia funded the rebuilding of the temple, if you didn't know that. So Ezra is noticing that. God, you keep doing this. You keep doing these gracious, awesome things for us. And we keep betraying you because we can't keep your commands. What should we say? So that's the glimmer of hope part of this. I love that in King James it says, you've given us a measure of revival in our bondage. Right? That's just, I think that's awesome. And a temple and a wall. <sighs> okay. So, after that, he goes back to his confession. And now this is a point I want to make. He begins to confess according to the word. Okay? Um, in 10, uh, now our God, what can we say after this? We have disregarded the commands. You gave through your servants the prophets when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples, by their detestable practices, like sacrificing their children in the fire, for example. They have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other, and this is key. Therefore, 
Do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty with friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. Look up Deuteronomy 7, verses 2 and 3, and that's almost a direct quote that Ezra had from memory. Right? So he's confessing according to the word of the Lord as one who trembles at the word of the Lord of God of Israel. Okay, now, I think this next paragraph is the one that I think is really key. Starting in verse 13, what has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt, and yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and have given us a remnant like this. That line, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved. What punishment does sin deserve? Death. The wages of sin is? Right. Non-negotiable. When my will cuts across God's will, Elizabeth Elliot said, somebody has to die. You see where this is going? There's a contradiction here. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with people who have commit such detectable practices? He asks rhetorically, and they tell himself what's the logical outcome of that. Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survival? O oh Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Right? He calls out the obvious thing. If we go on the way we're going, you will be completely justified in wiping us off the face of your planet. But you are righteous because you have given us a remnant. In fact, you have come to our rescue, ridden to our rescue, time after time after time after time. The history of the Jewish experience reminds me of a scene from Grantchester. It's okay, I can quote PBS because it's not broadcast TV, right? So um, <laughs> there's a cop and a priest, uh, and the priest is awful. I mean, he's been in- involved in some very bad behaviors. And the, the cop looks at him and says, you know, Sidney, I don't get it about you. You sin, you feel bad, you drink. You sin, you feel bad, you drink, right? And it gets unresolved. That's what the Jewish nation did. They sin, they pursue idolatry, they turn away from the commandments of God, and he kicks their butt by the Assyrians or whoever it is. Name them, right? And they come in. It says they're God's instrument, they're God's hands to come in and punish his people. And then they repent and they cry out for help. And what does he do? He rescues them. Over and over and over. It's like lather, rinse, repeat. <sighs> so the contradiction comes. I still didn't get to it. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt. I just want you to sit in that for 10 seconds. Here we are before you, the righteous God, in our guilt though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. That's a contradiction, right? And Ezra realizes it. And that is the brief moment of grace, is that God does not destroy them. He does not wipe them out completely. He's very harsh with them um, because they disobey him. Very simple relationship there. Okay. Then I'm going to kind of compress this next chunk, except for 10.1 I have to read. That's worth reading again. When Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house 
of God. Right? It said earlier in verse 5, then at the evening sacrifice, which was a lamb, I rose from myself a basement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. So the, his, the confessing leader is like this, right? After laying without eating or drinking and weeping for most of the day. But the people, got, they come to it. I want you to notice something very important about Ezra's prayer. There's not a single request for anything. Not one. He confesses. He expresses his gratitude. He confesses by the word. And he leaves it in God's hands. Understanding the frailty of his position. Okay? My next underlined thing. Deep conviction leads to extraordinary actions. Here's what they do. Ezra just leaves it. And he's still weeping and falling on the ground. And Shechaniah, a guy, one of the leaders he picked from Babylon, steps up and says, all right, you know what? We have, conf- we, we have sinned. You're absolutely right. We are wrong in this thing, so we're going to do whatever it takes, whatever leads us, and you, Ezra, you just carry out whatever has to happen. They make an oath with Ezra to the Lord to, um, and we can discuss this later if you want, to divorce their foreign wives and put them away with all the pain, mess, difficulty, and legal harassment that probably went along with that. But they confess to do that. Deep conviction leads to extraordinary actions. As he's throwing himself down and weeping in front of the temple, a large crowd of people gathered around him, and they too wept bitterly. It's a community. It's a a confessing community. And just one little quick one. I have to quote this for you, is they, uh, oh, I'm sorry, before I say this, later you'll see after they do all this and they go through the actions and put away the wives, then what do they have? Another worship service that's filled with sacrifice. Sin comes with a price and somebody has to pay it. We trample the blood of the Son of God underfoot if we think we are forgiven because we are sorry for our sins. The only reason for the forgiveness of our sins by God and the infinite depth of his promise to forget them is the death of Jesus Christ. Our repentance is merely the result of our personal realization of the atonement by the cross of Christ as represented in those sacrificial lambs. Okay, a few points to pull from this um, for your fun and enjoyment. Number one, and this is sort of my my big banner whenever I'm up here, it's like Ezra, we should devote ourselves to the study and observance of the law of of the Lord. Right? We will not neglect your word. Now, bigger one. Sin as a corporate issue is distressing. Right? I'm going to hit you so hard, your whole family will feel it. I'm concerned that we don't hate sin enough or realize what an affront it is to our God. You know, don't you, that at the end of the day, every sin is a sin against God. David, when he was confronted by Nathan, 
said, against you and you only have I sinned, though he committed adultery with this one and killed that one. The sin was against God. What would happen if we as a congregation began to corporately confess our sins? Or at least be distressed about them, right? There are things that damage us as a body and keep us unhealthy and should grieve our hearts and lead to a corporate reaction. As one of your elders, I am even more obligated to do this. I've tried to begin a practice of confessing on behalf of you and me. Right? It's difficult. It feels presumptuous. It feels like, how do I deal with the log eye problem? Right? We can all engage in the proper agony that the sin in our body should bring us to. And I, earlier version of this, I had noted a few things. And I thought, no, I'm not even going to do that. I'm not even going to do that. I'm going to invite all of you who tremble at the words of God to think about our body and think about what's going on in our body that is grieving the heart of Jesus. And then I want you to join me in confessing that to him. I'm guessing nobody needs a suggestion. In fact, you know what? I want to do that right now. I'm just going to pray briefly, maybe not. And I want you to come with me. Come with me on a journey to stand in our guilt before God, who has punished us less than our sins deserve. In fact, He loved us so much. If you read the passage in Deuteronomy, he calls us, the called out ones, his treasured possession. Right? Let's do that. Father in heaven, all of us, all of us are sinners and we stand in front of you by your mercy alone and by the grace of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. That's it. And we do disregard your commands. Father, and I, I confess that we have, we have lacked devotion for you. We have, left our first, we have lost our first love. We've become defensive and more interested in being right than being kind. We've taken positions that we think are infallible and must impose them on others that are not biblical. We have not regarded the sanctity of marriage to the extent you would have us to do. And we have chased, chafed under your discipline of us because we believe we have a better plan. We have neglected your word. And yet... And yet, in this brief 
moment of grace. You have not punished us to the extent that our sins deserve, but rather given us blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing. We confess that we have not been grateful enough to you for your boundless provision and awesome care and your deep, deep, deep love for us that you keep the entire universe running from the farthest galaxy to the smallest subatomic particle. There's nothing outside of your control. And yet you have the grace to to descend, to condescend, and to speak, and to think, and to walk with each of us on an individual basis. It is an awesome and amazing thing. And we give ourselves into your hand today. Father, cleanse us. Prepare us for that great wedding with our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, when you take us for the greatest reunion ever. We adore you. In Jesus' name, amen. Nick said I didn't give you much warning. There's another page. But you know what? I can make it up as I go along, which is kind of what I just did. So um, sue me later. Um, That's it. I think that was enough.